Garoppolo, and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Today we'll talk about a Feminexit update. The Equal Pay Day is here. It's first Tuesday of the month, so Star Parker's joining us to talk about the GOP and the black vote and is closing the border a sign of dangerous nationalism. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk and to today's first five. Well, today's Equal Pay Day. And a few days ago in this show, we talked about the Paycheck Fairness Act, one of the Democrats' latest missions to expand the power of government. But on Equal Pay Day, I want to share a couple of important points that came out in this issue about equal pay for women. One, I want to put up a tweet. Bernie Sanders, our Democrat socialist perpetual candidate for president, uh, tweeted out this week, tweeted out today, his support for Equal Pay Day. And he says, as you can see in the screen, I believe, he says, you know, women earn uh, 80 cents on the dollar compared to every man, uh, 61 cents on the dollar for, for black women, 57 cents on the dollar for Native American women and 53% uh, on the dollar uh, for Latina women, all as compared with men. And the uh, effort, of course, is to gin up support for the Paycheck Fairness Act and for the larger mission of the American left to endlessly, perpetually, relentlessly create division in our society, create a victim mentality on the part of various groups of Americans and support for the Democrats' ever-increasing effort to just increase, excuse me, effort to ever increase the power of the federal government. The Paycheck Fairness Act uh, pending, I think the House might have passed it, but it won't go anywhere in the Senate. But the point of it is, it's a, it's a bill designed to give the federal government power to really look over the shoulder of every business owner in this country, look at all of the data that will be that those employers will be required to assemble and submit to the government, which is an expensive and time-consuming process. And then the government, of course, will review your decisions and ask, why did employee X, uh, some, a woman, get paid slightly less than employee Y? And you'll spend your time in administrative hearings, in court, and ultimately defending decisions which obviously employers have to make um, all the time. This is not to say that paycheck unfairness does not exist. It is not to say that America is perfect, that every uh, employer is perfect. But it is to say that you need to recognize the quest, the mission of the American left, in introducing things like the Paycheck Fairness Act. There was also a... um, an argument that came out this week, actually in a Forbes magazine, and it had to do with this whole argument of whether or not part of the difference between the pay of men and women relates to the majors and careers, the college majors and careers that women choose. I have a graph, and I don't know, we're gonna put it up on the screen, I'm not sure if you're gonna be able to read it, but I can just tell you. Let me zip in and tell you. This is a graph that shows basically the college majors that men versus women choose. And this is the uh, the uh, women, females are in gray, it's odd colors they chose, but female are in gray and men in orange. But just look at the difference in the choices of majors men choose versus what women choose. Women tend to choose majors like, um, let me give you a good one, environmental studies, um, English, Spanish, anthropology, English creative writing, psychology, uh, and th- nothing, not to say there's anything wrong with these majors, but the point is, 
Women choose majors that lead them into jobs that pay less in our free market society, our free market country, than the majors men choose. Men choose where the men tend to dominate in majors and choosing majors over women. Men choose economics by a landslide over women. Men choose things like, um, uh, let me go to the big ones, government, of course, heading to law school, then usually government majors are people heading to law school. Um, men choose business, um, organizational things related to society, economics. Um, they choose history, again, often leading to a law degree. The point is that majors that people choose translate into the jobs they have available to them. But the new argument I've been reading about today was written up in Forbes magazine, so I want to just make this point uh, and talk about because the, my bottom line is this. I don't want the government regulating pay any more than they already do. Already in federal law since 1963, we've had the Equal Pay Act. Women have had a way to go to court to argue if they believe they are being paid less than a man doing the same job. We've had women included in Title VII, the massive federal uh, program, federal law that gives a cause of action, allows people to sue if they believe they're being discriminated against based on race, sex, national origin, all of that in all sorts of employment decisions, not just pay, but hiring and promotions and uh, assignments. So women already have many legal avenues available to them. They also have in every state in this country, they have laws that protect against discrimination. So the need is not for more laws. The need is, though, for more women to speak up. And that is one point that's being made in this article. I posted today at our website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org, which is about the idea that there are kind of non- um, there are factors in society, in life, that cause people to choose different careers and maybe part of the gender gap in pay um, is due to some of these things. This woman is arguing, for example, that too many high school teachers encourage girls to go to college and study you know, social work and guys to study engineering or chemistry or to move into the field of medicine. The point being that advisors along the way, teachers and counselors, may still steer women toward uh, jobs that are kind of traditional feminine jobs. That could be true. We don't need a federal law to fix that. We need people to speak up. We need families. We need students, girls and boys, and parents and families to speak up to fix that. But the problem is not that the women are forced into those careers. There are still choices. They also, this article goes on and on and on about attacking the idea of the gender pay gap being related to choices women make, about the idea that women have children, which at least they do concede that women do are the ones who have children. But they're arguing about why is it that our society doesn't reward women for this and their stay-at-home time. And that, my friends, is a basic issue of freedom. It's just about freedom. In America, as long as you're a mom who has the legal right to work or not work, stay home or not stay home, no one is forcing you to stay home. The fact that you have less accumulated job experience, so you're going to be paid less than a guy who's worked straight through and has not taken time for parental leave, this is a product of freedom. It's a product of free markets. Then this Equal Pay Day, I say, to celebrate Equal Pay Day, celebrate truth. Number one. When you eliminate this equal pay, this argument that women are paid less than men comes from just totaling salaries earned by women in this country 
versus salaries earned by men in this country, and then dividing that, that uh, total number by the number of people. So the basic answer, and it is a factually accurate statement, that men earn on average more than women if you do it that way, if you just calculate straight out raw data. If you factor in the jobs women choose, the, career, the choices they make, in fact, women tend on a two-to-one basis, women favor jobs with time, flexibility, uh, flexibility to work from home, to take long breaks, to do child care or parental care or whatever they're doing. If you factor in, factor out those choices people make, and you do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, women, same education level, same career, same job, same amount of time, roughly speaking, in that career. So you're, you know, you're comparing a 10-year electrical engineer woman with a 10-year experienced electrical engineer man. The wage gap virtually disappears. All the rest of it is simply due to freedom. So an equal pay day, celebrate by learning the facts. Oh, actually, one last thing I've got to tell you. Even Harvard probably killed them to admit it. Even Harvard came out with a study essentially saying the gender wage gap is explained entirely by work choices men make versus the choices women make. Even Harvard had to just give in and acknowledge the facts. That, my friends, is Equal Pay Day. We're going to turn now to an interview with Star Parker. Star Parker's been on this show uh, many times, actually. And she is uh, with us online. I believe we have her on the phone. And as we are... Uh, we're making sure we have that connection. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about her. There's Star. At least you can see her picture. Uh, Star Parker is. Um, well, hi. <laughs> she hi. is. Oh, you have my picture up. How cute. Oh, I don't see it. It's a great. Yeah, Which one did you choose? Okay, orange background with the uh, animal. It's a really nice one. I chose. Do I have it. the braids? Do I have my braids? Yes. Got to see my braids. Yes. I okay, think you look ahead. beautiful. I think it's a great, great picture. Anyway, so. <laughs> Star is the founder of Cure, uh, an organization based in Washington, D.C., the Center for Urban Renewal Education. Uh, she is in anyone's list of top national black conservative leaders. She's on the list. Uh, she promotes market-based solutions to fight poverty through Cure. She actually worked in the federal welfare reform legislation in the mid-90s uh, and really just works to bring free market-based solutions to ha actually help uplift low-income communities in America. Prolific writer. She has books. She has columns. In fact, on our website, we link to some of her columns, americacanwetalk.org, homepage under... I think it says under shows, go down, list the links, and there's Star Parker. So, welcome, Star. I am. Hey, wait a minute. I think that picture is older than I, um, you know, like, not older than me, but I think it's young when it was like 10 years ago, maybe. I should update my picture with you. But hi. Okay, well, I think you look... No, I, I, I think I like that picture, too. I think that's a good one. <laughs> will make me younger so that I can change the image of the conservative movement. Well, actually... I'll go younger. That's right. Okay. Well, actually, uh, we're going to, I'm going to remember you said that in about five minutes, I come back to a different topic I wanted to hit with you today, but I want to start with a column that you wrote. <laughs> what are you going to do? Put up a different picture? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean. What column? What do you <clears throat> want, my darling? I love you so much, and I'm so, I'm so thrilled to be with you, your audience, and that you even have your show, America, Can We Talk? Because what you just talked about is of such value. I can't believe I work in the swamp and they talk about this stuff like it's like we don't have a choice. Absolutely. Yeah, women do choose. <laughs> Absolutely. Women have a choice in so many things. And I, you know, the <laughs> left wing mindset, well, you deal with this and looking at issues related to poverty and solving poverty problems. 
big government leftists always think, oh, we heard of a problem. We know how to solve that. Create another program. Let more money come to Washington. Let us regulate you more and somehow we'll fix it. Does that sound familiar? It does. It's so sad. It is so sad. But we're here again. And I think the younger they're getting uh, and coming out of these um, government controlled universities and uh, schools, high schools, uh, the more we have to promote ideas of freedom. So thank you for having me on. I'm so glad you're here. I, I love your work. I love the, the work. Of, and I will urge our listeners also, it's urbancure.org. I'll say it several times. Great website, great organization to support. But I want to go to a column you wrote in Town Hall. I think it's now a couple weeks ago, but it's called Can Republicans Get Elected in Non-White America? And the column, mm, yeah. Yeah, the column is full of data that uh, is a little bit... Um, it's eye-opening. Here's a good word. It's eye-opening. But I'll just tell our listeners very quickly, and then i have you tell us what we should do about this. But, for example, in the 2020 presidential elections, projections say that about that over 66% of the voters, of eligible voters, will be white, uh, so the rest non-white. 66 in 2020, going back to 2016, just three years ago, two and a half years ago, 71% of the voters were white. And so we have the total number of voters in America who are white diminishing as a, as a percentage. And that, by the way, compared with in the year 2000, 76% of eligible voters were white. So the basic point is the representation of non-white Americans in the voting base in this country is increasing. Right. Yeah. So it's imperative that we talk about our values, the principles of Christianity, the virtues of capitalism, the rule of law outlined in our Constitution. Because if we don't, then you're going to have a majority in America who don't understand America and Americanism and American exceptionalism. It is an exceptional uh, country. Prior to America's existence, if you were born poor, you died poor. Uh, prior to America's existence, uh, if you were in a caste system, you lived and died in that system. We are the only and first country in the history of the world to where anyone from any ethnicity, any background, any uh, even those that make mistakes and need to be born again, like myself, can start and can uh, take to whatever heights they want, can realize the American dream and define how they want that dream defined. So yes, um, we are focusing a lot of time and attention right now at CURE on the demographic shifts. When you're looking at now what's happened in America, we have 180 million Americans that have European descent, you know, what we might consider Caucasian or white, because their values come through the Western culture uh, of Christianity, capitalism, and constitution, but from Europe. You have 140 million who are other, what the left is now defined as people of color. We've hearing that over and over again, but they're other than ethnic through Europe. So this generation of people, this new minority influx has been conditioned and trained through our government controlled cesspools we call schools that are controlled <laughs> by unions and they are now indoctrinated two generations of people to think that America is not exceptional. America is 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 colonial and America is stacked against them. So we must start concentrating some time and attention on these demographic shifts. 
Absolutely. And you know, you note in your column, too, I realize I urge people to read this again. Can Republicans get elected in non-white America by Star Parker and Town Hall? Also on our website. But you mentioned at this demographic shift in America that non-white Americans vote disproportionately for Democrats. And you have, right. ex- yeah, as an example, in 2016, Trump won 58 percent of the white vote. He lost every other ethnicity by large margins. He won only 8 percent of blacks, 29 percent of both Hispanics and Asians. So you're right. It's such a great point you're making. You're tying the viewpoints of America brought to the voting booth by various groups to the education system that has steered them to think less than wonderful things about America. So um, I'm I this isn't it's only a half joking question. You're going to fix all this but through cure, right, Star? <laughs> well, we're going to try to fix one portion because, you know, as you're pointing out, they're bringing their values into the voting booth. So what we have to do is make sure that people hear both sides of the story, make sure that they understand that there are two sides to this story. You have capitalism versus socialism. Let's think about and let's understand deeply what these concepts mean, what these systems of economic mean, uh, which, you know, as I've just mentioned, uh, these communities don't know. So now let's take a look at those numbers and where there is some place that I can work to solve it. Let's just say, okay, that 29% of Latinos that vote Republican, 29% of Latinos poll as conservative. So you got 29% of Latinos polling as conservative, and then they vote their values. In the Asian community, you have 29% of Asians who poll as conservatives, and then 29% of Asians vote for Republicans. In the black community, you have 22% of African Americans who poll as conservatives, but they vote for Republicans at 8%. So there is a disconnection with that other 14%, which will swing any election, any day, any community, any state and the presidency there's a disconnection in that 14 percent to vote their values so my question that becomes is it that they don't know they're voting against their interest or are they deliberately voting against their interest and these are questions that the only way we're going to find out is to get into those communities and, and ask and that's the reason that cure does its work in those communities with those pastors and through our breakfasts and our town halls so that we can say okay here are the facts Now, are you sure that that's what you want to continue to do? You can't now say you didn't know. And that's what we're trying to solve is to say, let's take the excuse of why I didn't know I was voting against my values, because I didn't know what they were doing when they went to Washington, D.C. You know, when you think about the uh, minority and ethnic uh, the vote uh, in right now in the Congress, we have the, the they they hold 116 seats now in the current Congress. We're talking about racial and ethnic minorities. They hold 116 seats in this current Congress compared to uh, 63 seats in 2001. So they're increasing their numbers here in Washington and giving most of us headaches. I mean, the CBC, Congressional Black Caucus, now has 55 members, 50% larger than in 2001, which is why when Congresswoman Omar was going to first sign off on Nancy Pelosi's um, resolution, she changed her mind because Louis Farrakhan got involved. And next thing you know, the Congressional Black Caucus got involved. And so they became a big block here in Washington to say, no, no, you were sent there to stir things up. And they're going to race politics all the way to 2020. So it's one of the reasons that we are looking at this very, very closely and working on it to make sure that people have as much information that they need to go in there and make an accurate vote consistent with their values. 
That was so well said. I want to reiterate something or uh, expand a little bit. So you mentioned that we almost have double the number of, uh, of minorities holding seats in Congress, 116 in the current Congress, 63 in the previous one. So that is, um, you know, that's all, almost well, double. 2001. 2001. 2001. Not okay. The previous. So yep. They've been growing every year, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, in 2001, we didn't have any Muslims, and now we have four. Right. They and just it, keep a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. So you're exactly right. Now there are 116 that are racial or ethnic minorities. They call them people of color, POC. Yep. And of those 116 in the current Congress uh, who are holding seats in Congress, racial and ethnic minorities, 90% are Democrats. So we're not really electing just more minorities. Is we're electing Democrats to Congress who are who are uh, racial and ethnic minorities. And so there's a there's a, uh, a, a it's very it's a disturbing and oh, concerning thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, now if you take the yes, go ahead. I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but you're absolutely right. Go ahead. Now if you put the female voter in there, then yes, you can bring it down to ninety. But when you talk about racial and ethnic. No, 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 no. They're 99% on the other side. We only have one in the House, one African-American in the House, uh, who I don't think is a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, but he sure trends left, uh, and that's Will Hurd. And yeah. then oh, if you talk Republican, and then you have one Republican African-American in the Senate, uh, and that's Tim Scott, who is our friend and yep. actually a good friend. Yeah. So this what you mentioned a moment ago, so you have uh, polling with respect to uh, – Asian groups, um, Hispanic and black groups. And basically the notion, what percent of those groups are conservative? It's a direct translation in the Asian and, and the Hispanic community between what percent poll uh, con- say they're conservative translates into votes for Republicans. But within the African-American polling, the, the uh, numbers don't translate. And I'm just reiterating what you're saying right. a moment ago. But so what is Republican Party? I love what you're talking about, that you're saying you are trying to bring the message to uh, lower income communities, black communities around the country, essentially arguing that you're not really voting for what you believe in. But what can the Republican Party be doing about it? Should, can they be doing a better job? Well, absolutely. And we're working very closely with the party as we go into these next 20 months, as well as, you know, our work here in Washington with the White House as we position many of the president's initiatives to reach this community, including his Opportunity Zones initiative, which is incredible. But the RNC has a job to do because, you know, when you point to, well, why are these other ethnic groups able to vote their values, but the black community doesn't? And one of the reasons is because the black history is a little bit different from the Asian and or the Latino. The Latino and the Asian were leaving oppression to come to freedom. So they understand what more uh, within their culture why they're here. They know and have tasted the freedom of America. They're only one generation from flipping, and that's why it's important we keep our eye on those two communities as well. But the African-American community is a little bit unique. In fact, it's very unique. It's the only unique community of people who did not come to America by choice. So there are issues in black America that we have to address, that we really need to um, uh, acknowledge when it comes to what they say is most important to them for uh, going into that voting booth. If you look at the general population, they say it, it's the economy. We've been told a hundred times it's economy saying it's economy stupid, it's economy common. Well, an African-American community is not the economy. It's safety. I want to know, is my little boy going to make it home from school? Uh, it's, it's, it's security. It's, and if he has somebody after him, it's going to be able to trust the policemen in the community. I and mean, when you look at the data between uh, blacks and their um, 
respect for uh, of federal government and compare that to whites and they're, you know, who should play these roles. It's a, it's stark contrast. The white community very much uh, appreciates and uh, their local policing and, and respect them. And then on on federal issues, it's more more disdain. They do not want the federal government there. But the blacks are exactly the opposite. They are very, very suspicious of all local. And then yet for federal hand, they look forward to that. And, you know, we can go into the historical questions of why that is. But whether we agree with why, whether it's perceived and or actual, we must address it. And so those are the reasons that you see that difference a little bit between the other people of color, if you will, or minorities that now the left is uh, trying to lump all together to say it's a big us against them. So they've vulcanized and segmented us as a community of Americans. And then they go into each of these people groups and then play their, you know, to their sensitivities and their fears. So in the black community, they play to the sensitivities and fears of racism and, um, you know, and inequality uh, based on historical past of slavery and Jim Crow. And that's why it's, a, it's very unique to how we would approach Asian and or Latino. Star Parker, your uh, work in America, truly, it is uh, America transforming and saving. If you can succeed and continue in your path of success of getting this message to uh, African-American voters, that the idea that what you believe in, what you poll you believe in, and what what made America great, what keeps America strong, which makes you able to prosper and be part of the American dream, uh, has to do with values that you share that they already hold the constitution christianity um i, I love your work and I, we could talk more about it, but i do want to turn and talk about the other topic that we had on the roster today if we can which is this movie that's come out recently unplanned and i mentioned it briefly in the show yesterday i saw it i believe last friday it's a movie related to abortion and um and it is a very it's a true story it's a pretty darn stark picture uh Pretty, it has some graphic portions, but it's basically letting people understand what abortion really is. It's not this, um, that we don't have a sugar-coated picture of it. But what happened, what I wanted to just get your uh, impression of and a reaction to is, in this movie, uh, the uh, there were many censors, or as this movie was being pushed toward release, many censors, many efforts of the left to, um, wouldn't aver- television wouldn't advertise it, the uh the Motion Picture Association gave it an R rating. I mean, you know, m- most adults I know don't even go to R movies. It has R rating uh, for violence, which is really just depicting abortion. But an amazing thing happened on Twitter, which is even though the first Twitter tried to block the, uh, the un- it's an actual hashtag at unplanned movie, but they had a, uh, a Twitter feed, a Twitter identity, unplanned movie, and that only became, uh, got onto Twitter August of 2018, and it has more followers of that. You know how you follow people on Twitter? 325,000 uh, compared with Planned Parenthood. So uh, the advocates for abortion, 259. I think a lot of folks on the left are blown away by the popularity of unplanned. I'm just, first of all, do you have a general reaction to that? Are you surprised to hear that unplanned is so popular? Well, I'm not surprised because I've, I'm on the board of the NRB, the National Religious Broadcasters, so I've been involved in knowing about the, every stage of the production of unplanned, of course, and following on the heels of Gosnell, and then now soon to be released Roe v. Wade. There is a deliberate attempt of the pro-lifers 
in our society to be more proactive. And so we have quite a few more movies coming out rapidly back to back to back. But the personal story that Abby Johnson is sharing about herself uh, is, is incredible. It's remarkable, and people are, are intrigued. Uh, plan has done very well. They got the R rating because it does show an abortion. Abortion is violence, and we want people to know it's violent. And so they were willing to accept the R rating as opposed to taking the actual abortion out, you know, perhaps just showing the graphics of the woman's face in agony or something like that. So we'll see what happens when the re-release or wherever. But, yes, I think it blew away Hollywood and others who thought that it was not going to be as successful as it was to be in a thousand theaters across the country in spite of the fact that, they wanted to spend their money with the secular. Hopefully, they learned to spend their money with 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 the with the sacred. You know, people like yourself and people that will do the promotions. Like, hey, I'll take some of your money over here and promote for you as well. Because you know, when you think about um, those that would be uh, open to go and and make a movie like this great, even if the seculars don't, and or you might have to take a friend with you. Let's keep in mind, a hundred million people in this country still get up and go to church on Sunday morning. 100 million. So what we have to do is show the strength of that 100 million. So sometimes not going to the world necessarily for a nod, but let's get the nod and increase our own. You know, I was just in a discussion with someone about even just the business environment. They're saying, well, nobody was going to advertise on the mic. Wait, no, there are Christian businessmen in here looking in this society, looking for places to also promote. We've got to stop looking 100% at what the left is doing and start looking at, well, who are we and what are we doing? Uh, you mentioned in your uh, opening monologue, uh, Forbes magazine. Well, Forbes puts out a, a list every year about the billionaires in society, all over the world, actually, um, the, all the billionaires. And so I went down that list. It's in this current issue. So I looked down that list, and I saw five or six people I know personally on that wow. list. I'm like, oh, they, they've been hiding their little money there. But, <laughs> but this is where, you know, we have to start thinking about what do we have? You know, what is in our hand? You know, when you think about King David, you know, he, before he was king, when he was just going up against Goliath, uh, against Goliath he could he couldn't wear the king. So what did he have? He had some stones. And so, yes, I'm so thankful that Unplanned did as well as it did. And now we need to keep the momentum going, push people to see it. Go take your friend to go see it. Keep in mind that a hundred million people in this country get up and go to church on Sunday morning. That's enough to drive any and everything in our culture. It absolutely is. And Star, as a related thing on this unplanned movie, how amazingly popular it is. It had a, a, a couple of other records that were really surprising, I think, to people in Hollywood. Um, it just had, in addition to the Twitter following, it, it just did much better than expected. But what do you say to the argument? Because you do hear people making this argument, even by unplanned, is pretty much, look, you have your hardcore pro-lifers. They're always going to feel that way. You have people who are stridently pro-choice. They're not going to be swayed by a movie. What is the reason to keep making this movie? It's the real question being, can, is there a persuadable swath of Americans that make it worth it to keep making these kind of efforts? I believe there are. Uh, the same way I, I really liked Elijah Lovejoy. People didn't like the fact that Elijah Lovejoy during slavery kept printing his little abolition newspapers. Yeah. Everybody's already made up their mind on slavery. I love Harriet Beecher Stowe. She didn't believe that everybody's already made up their mind on slavery, so she printed a book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Even Abraham Lincoln, when you read his inaugural, the first inaugural, he kind of sounded like some of those guys here in Washington are yep. like, well, do you guys have to keep bringing that up? But by his second inaugural, he sounded like Ted Cruz. No, here are the facts. 
and here's what we must do. So, you know, I, you know, I, I, my life, it's basically like Mother Teresa now. I like her and I'm single, so I have to live like her. Um, but she said, you touch one, you've touched all. You change one, you've changed the world. So it's not about a lot. It's about the one friend that the person listening right now has that needs to change their mind. So let's take them to the movie tomorrow. That's what it's really about. One, touch one, touch all, change one, change the world. I love that. And there was actually a theme. Someone wrote a piece about talking about they uh, got an Uber ride somewhere and it was a relatively short ride. And they apologized to the driver like, oh, you probably hate this. It's just one little ride. I'm sorry, but I had to get a ride. And he said, nope, every ride counts. One after the next after the next. He was saying same is true of spreading the message of life. And and actually, the, exactly yeah, I, I love that thought. I love that that vision, too, of people leaving this movie and thinking, you know, who can I tell about this? Who could I bring with me the next time? Who could I have a conversation with? Because it's just a I think there's a lot of argument. One last thing on this movie is there's a lot. The left will argue or try to paint the picture that the only people really standing up for life are kind of the old fashioned, smarmy, grandmothery. Uh, judgmental, churchy people, and uh, and that really there's a lot of uh, that there's there's not a lot of energy for the le- message of life among young Americans, among young people, and I statistically know that to be untrue. But I also just think that the effort of continuing to talk it kind of it just pushes back against that narrative that you know the pro life message is really just for. Uh, just for old people or just kind of um, judgmental Christians versus it should be something. I'm not saying all Christians are judgmental, but the characterization by the left is that way. Right. But there's always just a message that of course, if you don't stand up for life, you know, th- then why you be here? You know what it's for, though? You know what it's for? The 68 million. 68 million dead babies since Roe v. Wade. So that's 68 million women. Now, it might be 60 million because some people, like myself, had multiple abortions. But that's who it's really for, the lost sheep, the one who said, oh, my God, I can't believe what I did. And they, her- they bury it inside, and it's their secret sin for the rest of their lives, miserable, living inside, hoping somebody can see it one day in their eyes or feel their heart. Yeah, that's who it's for. It's not for the, the hardcore left-winger who's never going to apologize for her abortion because she's just going to live in it. It's for those that are struggling. Those that every time something happens in their life, they, 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 they think it's the abortion. Those that are going to sleep at night every day and still crying. Those that 30 years later say, even on my deathbed, I'm going to say I'm sorry one more time. No, they need to know they're not alone. They need to know that there are people fighting for them, even if they're old, folky, white, and, and go to church every Sunday. They need to know that, you know what, yeah, you're the lost sheep. We're being exactly like the Lord who went and found that little lost sheet. So that the other 99, those little millennials will know that, you know what, we know that you're going to make mistakes too. Look at the regret of those that are now 50, 60, who never birthed. They had one chance and they killed it and they never birthed. And look at their misery. Look what happened to Abby. No, this is the story. She was horrified. She had aborted. She went into the abortion industry and she was horrified. She confronted it with the Lord God totally forgave her. She found out he is not mad at her, and he's not mad at the one listening right now 
who is sitting there still suffering in it because they don't think they can release it or tell anyone. Now, this movie is incredibly valuable to our society because the people are hurting because of abortion. The women, the husbands, the men, the boys that had an abortion and they didn't even know they had an abortion until after. The ones that had an abortion and forced her to have the abortion who are now trying to reconcile. The grandparents, don't tell me this is not important. The society itself. I mean, we are bleeding in the streets as a result of killing our offspring. So, yes, the movie has tremendous value, and I hope that everyone will take any and everyone they know to see it. Star Parker, thank you so very much. On that note, I couldn't possibly add to it. Star Parker, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, for our listeners, urbancure.org, tremendous organization. Uh, Star founded it. She runs it. They uh, They do just so much good for this country. And thank you for joining us today, Star. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. Bye, Uh, honey. Talk to you soon. Okay. (laughs) Bye. Bye. And finally, on America Can We Talk today, I do want to turn and talk with you uh, about this battle over the border and a new kind of twist on the argument, because it's really important to keep focused on the fact that we do not have a secure southern border. We do not have a secure southern border for a variety of reasons. It's been building up over the last, I don't even know how to count it, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But three points about this. Number one, President Trump tweeted out, and you probably saw this last Friday, in a series of three tweets that just were kind of how he does that string along tweet. He basically said, you know, Mexico has better better laws than than we do about securing their border. Congress must act, change our weak immigration laws. Uh, Number two, if Mexico doesn't stop all illegal immigration coming to the U.S. through the southern border, President Trump said, I will be closing the border on large sections of the border next week. And he talked about they just take our money. So he targeted Mexico, but he's basically saying he may actually close the border. And, of course, many in the American left who don't support building the wall, who don't support funding uh, border security, who, who do support sanctuary cities, who do think that illegal aliens should be able to vote, who do not favor any kind of strengthening of the border, all of those leftists were out of their mind when they actually pictured President Trump really delivering on the promise of closing the border. Now, he hasn't said he's going to do it, but he's getting closer. So the first point is the predictions now in this country over the next 12 months is that we will have somewhere in the range of 1 million to 1.5 million more illegal immigrants cross our southern border. If you can't see that as an invasion, you just don't want to deal with the truth. President Trump was very firm in saying he's not going to let it continue. It was a it was a primary point of his campaign. It was a primary promise to voters. So he's talking about doing this. And, uh, you know, he may end up doing it for a while until he gets the attention of the Mexican government and the attention of the U.S. Congress saying we're going to do something about this. So very serious about closing the border. Number two, that tweet by President Trump and the follow on conversations and media interviews brought out the argument of the left that Trump is guilty of, and to use the uh, language of the formerly sane and now just anti-Trump, non-Trump, obnoxious commentator Jonah Goldberg, he wrote a column called The Dangers of Unchecked Nationalism. What Jonah Goldberg is basically arguing is 
for Trump to be signaling closing the border that he's really crossing the line or might be crossing the line into dangerous racial nationalism. So I want to just make, help you think this through, help us think this through, get very, very clear about this. The nationalism that occurred in Germany, in, in Nazi Germany, the term nationalism gets thrown around with lots of definitions. In Nazi Germany, Hitler was saying, you know, he wanted the Aryan race, a blonde, blue-eyed, German, blue-eyed Germanic race. That is ugly, evil, ethnic or racial nationalism. He used it to justify the slaughter of millions of Jews, of uh, people in the clergy, of Catholics, of non-Aryan people. He used it, that argument that the Aryan race was superior to commit among the most horrific actions in, in all of world history. And yes, I know there are evil tyrants who killed more people, but right now I'm making this point about Hitler. This idea of nationalism, in Hitler's meaning of the term, white nationalism, is ugly and evil and unjustifiable and has nothing at all to do with what President Trump is talking about. Nationalism, the idea of America actually being a country with secure borders, with borders that are enforced, with, with borders that people who want to enter our, enter our country need to understand they have to go through. They have to enter America legally. It is an idea of having the identity of our very country. In fact, the very identity of America, the meaning of America, it's a country that is based on ideas. America is a country based on the ideas our founders wrote in the profound documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the founding ideas, the ideas spelled out more deeply in the writings of our founders and the Federalist Papers has nothing at all to do with race. Nothing to do with skin color, nothing to do with ethnicity. It has 100% to do with ideas. You can't hold on to a country based on ideas if you permit people to enter this country illegally, to remain here, here illegally, to fail and refuse to follow our laws, to fail to pursue citizenship, or some other legal status of being here. It is the ugliest and most unjustified accusation by Jonah Goldberg and anybody else talking about this, the idea that Trump's saying we're going to have a secure border. And if that means a border wall or closing the border, then so be it. Nationalism, as, as that word, if it, that word would be to, to be applied correctly to President Trump, it is about the idea of holding on to America, the great human experiment in human liberty, which can not exist without borders, without laws, without every person in this country having some legal status to be here. It is a not just a lie to accuse President Trump of racism because he wants a secure border or because he may close the border to get security at the border. It is also an ugly, ugly accusation about the identity, the meaning of America. America has been the most welcoming country in the world throughout our history. In fact, I read data recently of all the refugees in the world, all these refugees fleeing violence and war and moving to other countries. America has the most in numbers and the highest percentage 
as compared with all other countries in this world. We are already generous. We are already trying to help the world. But the idea of accusing the president, any president, of ugly, racist nationalism because they want a secure border is truly an evil, just a nefarious, evil, unjustifiable accusation. And the idea, if you want to, it's one thing you want to have a debate about, you know, should we close the border uh, entirely or can we fix it with building a wall? Can we fix it with more funding? Can we fix it with expanding the border patrol? That's an argument to have. That's a policy discussion. How do we secure the border? If you don't agree the border should be secure, you don't agree America should exist. America, the idea. America, the precious. America, the exceptional, which must have as a fundamental factor in, its, in, it, in, in what it is, it must have a secure border, a set of laws that apply to everyone, a, a rules about when you come here, what status you're allowed to, pers to pursue, and the idea that if you have no legal right to be here, you need to go home. There is nothing racist about that. There's everything right about that, standing up for the idea of preserving America, which is exactly what this show is always about. America Can We Talk is always about preserving America, the most extraordinary experiment in human liberty in the history of the planet. And that's why I talk about it every day. That's why I urge you to talk about it, to stand up for this precious country, because America matters. Talk to you tomorrow. America, can we talk truth about America?